are listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. We are located in Thunder Bay, Ontario. To find out more about us, please visit www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning, everyone. We certainly do live in interesting times. Uh, Reminded again this morning, I was walking in the first service a little early, and uh, there was a visitor. And the ushers, doing their job, of course, were telling the visitor, sorry, you can't come in. (laughs) Uh, And so the visitor sat to the side to make sure there would be enough room. But I mean, how often do you tell a visitor, you can't come into a church? Uh, but fortunately, there was a little room at the very back, and he came in. So that's interesting. Uh, <clears throat> today we're looking at a very familiar passage. Uh, last last week I was here, and uh, if you were here, I spoke on uh, on Malachi, and hopefully part of the message, or a big part of the message, was Malachi as the last book of the Old Testament. Uh, is, and at least I suggested to you, a summary of the people of the Old Testament with regard to their relationship with God. And that is, on our own, on their own, our own, we are incapable of, of relationship with God. And so Malachi, as the last book of the Old Testament, does what? Continually uh, points to man's need for a savior. And so today we're going to look at the Savior, Jesus Christ, and how he graciously works in the heart of one individual and hopefully make some application to us as well. So we are going to look at a very, very familiar passage. And if you have a Bible or access or an iPad or whatever the phrase is nowadays, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. And again, very familiar to most of you. If you've been a Christian, I'll say all of your life, you know this story all by heart, and you know it well. Uh, So please bear with me, because hopefully as we go through it, hopefully we can glean some godly points from this this passage together. So I'm going to read Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake again at Esrat. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. 
But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boat to the land, they left everything and followed him. Uh, I just want to tell you a little thing of my personal um, makeup, if you will. I'm not sure what the word is. When I read particularly the New Testament, some of the things uh, speak loudly to me, I, um, might I say it maybe a bit more than, than some of you, uh, and before you, you judge that comment, let me c- explain why. Um, uh, for the first seven years, I, well, I was born and grew up in Portugal for the first seven years, and so uh, some of the things in Israel are very close to some of the things in Portugal, and Portugal was a very poor country. So when scripture speaks of uh, a light yoke, I witnessed yokes being put on donkeys and oxen. Uh, when scripture speaks of olives, I mean, I picked olives uh, as a kid. I mean, kids had to work back then, even at seven. When scripture speaks of fig trees, I often climbed up the fish tree, a f- not a fish tree, a fig tree, and ate fresh figs. And so it is with this particular passage. When I read about a fisherman sort of mending their nets or washing their nets. Uh, my dad was already in Canada, and, f- and for the, f- I guess, two or three years, my mother would take us uh, by bus to this little beach town, which was and still is really a, a fishing town, well, of a village. It's a fishing village. And every morning, we as kids would run down to the beach, and we would see all these fishing boats uh, coming on to shore. Some of them were already on shore, and we would see the fishermen and their wives. They would be washing their nets and mending their nets, and others are coming on to shore. Again, Portugal being very poor, not a motorboat in sight. Giant oars would be coming out of these boats, and then they would attach uh, huge uh, pairs of oxen, and these were big, again, the yokes, and they would be pulling these boats on to shore uh, for the evening. They couldn't pull them too far because they, if they pull them too far, and then when the tide came in, it, it wouldn't be deep enough for them to go back out. So that's what I recall. So when I read this passage, oh yes, I remember the fishermen doing exactly what the passage here states. Anyway, that's, that's me, okay? That's <laughs> Let me say, first of all, that... Uh, This passage that I just read, uh, you'll probably say, well, that's also found in Mark, and that's also found in Matthew, Mark 1 and Matthew 4, and and that is true. Uh, There are differences between those passages and this Luke passages, and it may not come as a surprise to you that biblical scholars do not agree on whether the Matthew Mark uh, passages are, ident- are the same as this Luke uh, situation here. Uh, there are arguments to say those are one and the same, strong arguments, and there's also very strong arguments to say the Matthew-Mark incident is different 
than the Luke incident. In other words, there's two separate incidents here. Now, not to cause confusion, not to cause any angst here, and your pastor can straighten me out after, but I'm going forward as if these are two separate incidents. I, I believe they are. I'll quote Alfred Ottersheim, you probably know of him, in his classic, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, he concludes this section of Jesus by saying this, stating categorically, this is the final call of these particular apostles after the call of Matthew and Mark. So there was a call back then, and there was another call here. If you're familiar with Campbell Morgan, when he writes on this particular passage, he too is adamant and actually says, we must remember this is a different incident. So I'm aligning myself with those particular gentlemen, and so I will go forward as if these are definitely two different incidents. Well, this incident is still fairly early within a matter of months, uh, if that, of Jesus' baptism. Uh, we, all, we know from scripture that his fame had already begun to spread. And Jesus is now in the area of Galilee. He'd been there a number of weeks, maybe a month. We had the situation where he's in hometown and they want to throw him off a cliff. You, you remember that? Uh, he, he's not far from Nazareth. Uh, incidentally, Lake Gennesaret, I don't know why I have trouble saying that all the time, has two other names in scripture, the same lake. It's not a sea, it, it's a lake. And that is uh, the Sea of Galilee and the Sea of Tiberias, one and the same. So if you're reading, those are the same. And so many people had come to listen to Jesus to speak, and Luke is very clear. He identifies and he says, to listen to the word of God, says Luke. So many people had come such they were pressing upon Jesus, and I can visualize Jesus sort of move, slowly moving back toward the sea. Luke seems to imply, as I read this, that these people at this particular time did really come to listen to Jesus, to listen to the word of God. Jesus, yes, had performed some miracles at this time. He had performed some healings to this point. But these people, again, at this point in time, were not coming to have their stomachs filled as per later. We know that happened. But rather they came to hear the word of God. And unbeknownst to them, at this point, okay, hearing the word of God from God himself. Oh, to be there, right? From a practical human perspective, Jesus cannot preach very well to people pressing upon him, so he jumps into Peter's boat to address the crowd. There is no indication at this point that Peter or his partners are listening to Jesus. They had worked very hard all night, they wanted to wash their nets or mend whatever needed to, to, to be done and go home and sleep. Now we know Peter had already spent some time with Jesus. Uh, he was with Jesus, one of the four or five, five or six apostles at the wedding in Canaan. And he had witnessed that first miracle, turning the water into wine. After that, they go to Peter's house and scripture says that Peter witnessed or Jesus healed his mother-in-law. Peter and his partners had once before, again, because this is a separate incident, had been called by Jesus to follow him. And Peter and his partners did. 
but it appears they did on a part-time basis because we find them now here, once again, they're fishing back to their comfort level, back to providing for their family, back to looking after their needs, which is all good, all honorable. And so this developing relationship, because he had been with Jesus, may be the reason why we see Jesus basically jump into uh, Peter's boat without any asking of permission, without any hesitation, without any discussion. So he's in a boat. Now, if Peter was not listening to Jesus as he's washing his nets, he couldn't help now but listen to Jesus as Jesus is speaking from his boat. What did Jesus teach here? What was taught by Jesus? Well, we don't know. And to me, that's significant. It's clear, to me at least, that Luke is directing us to something else besides uh, Jesus' words here, even though Luke, first of all, identifies uh, teaching the word of God. And yet Luke doesn't tell us what Jesus taught. Normally, when Jesus taught something, uh, the writers of the Gospels would give us a snapshot of what Jesus said, but not here. And I think it's because uh, Jesus, I mean, wants us, or Luke, wants us to focus on this object lesson that Jesus is about to give us through Peter. That's what Luke wants us to do, okay? It doesn't tell us what Jesus said, but this is going to be important, folks. I paraphrase, of course. And so Jesus finishes teaching. And I don't know, if we were Peter, <laughs> all of us, I think we would be grateful because our expectation, Jesus asked us to take us out a little further. He finishes teaching and uh, he's finished. My muscles are sore. My eyelids are extremely heavy with sleep. Now I can go home and rest because I gotta do this again this evening. But no, that's not what happened. Jesus asks Peter to go out a little further, a little farther and let down their nets. Likely, one of Jesus' partners was also in the boat because the boats were approximately 25 feet long approximately and would need at least, if not more, two men to row the boats and work with the nets and haul in the nets. It is also likely, as we'll see in a, a second, that the other boat also went with Peter out a little farther because of the way the nets worked. What was Jesus, uh, Peter's reply in verse 5? According to most commentators, Peter's reply here is none other than a polite, gentle, but frustrating rebuke of Jesus. Clearly, Peter at this point did not yet recognize Jesus as God. You see, Peter was a fisherman, okay? This is what he did for a living. He knew fishing, when to put out the nets, when not to put out the nets. And for me, I can almost visualize Peter in a sense of frustration, just say, biting his tongue to tell Jesus he's, he's wrong. But he, he holds. Jesus was a carpenter, not a fisherman. And essentially, Peter is saying to Jesus, look, we know what we're doing. Uh, we've been doing this for years. And, and at night is when you catch the fish, in the shallows, not, not in the heat of the day, out in the deep. 
Everything that Jesus was asking Peter to do pointed to a fishing expedition that was going to result in failure, according to to Peter's experience, according to the fisherman's experience. Then he says, and besides, we've worked hard all night. And, And Peter was not exaggerating. Fishing was, in fact, hard work. These nets, called drag nets, and they're still used today, except everything's mechanized, would be carefully thrown into the water as the boats, plural, it would require at least two, maybe more, are maneuvered into a semicircle. One end of of the net was weighed down and would descend as far as possible to the bottom, and then the men, Uh, would be pulling on the nets into the boat to see if they caught anything. And this would happen time and time and time again, all night long. And so when he said, we've worked hard all night, they did work hard all night. And so this particular night, God providentially saw to it that they caught nothing. But we at the same time can hear a sign of frustration as Peter And his reply says, okay, master, we'll do as you ask us, possibly acknowledging that Jesus was a man from God, acknowledging that he was an important rabbi. And as verse 5 and 6 then tells us, the narrative tells us, there was such a, a bumper catch that they called the other guys that were already in the boat to, to help with the catch. And both boats began to sink. And I was trying to figure out how many fish would it take uh, to sink a boat approximately 25 feet long and four to five feet deep. Uh, I couldn't because there's so many different, there's approximately seven species of fish. Some of them are that long in the Sea of Galilee, some that long. So what what type of fish they caught, I don't know. But the answer is an awful lot of fish. That's the answer. But Peter's response I would suggest if such a scenario happened to many of those folks back then, and if we put it in today's context, if this type of thing happened to many folks, maybe us, we would do what? We would want to sign Jesus up as a business partner really quick. Because, man, We've been fishing for all our lives, and this was a bumper catch. And all we can do here is see dollar signs, increase our wealth. We want Jesus to give us that wealth, do we not? Now, I digress for a second, because sadly, this is precisely how Jesus is looked upon even today. And I say that with a sense of frustration, with a sense of sadness. Uh, by certain elements of Christianity because they look at Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as a perpetual cash machine where you put your card of faith, and it's got to be your faith, never mind the fact that God gives the faith, they ignore that, that part, and you put in your card of faith and then Jesus will give you all that you want. And if you don't get all of you want, then it's your fault, not his because you don't have enough faith. The push is to follow Jesus because he wants the best for you and their definition of the best is what the world has to offer. 
They want to say, you've got to be healthy, you've got to be happy at all times, and you've got to be wealthy because that's what Jesus wants. And of course, send us a little bit of money because God is going to bless you the more money you send in. Folks, if you're at all in doubt, that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because these folks who push that false gospel ignore the vast majority of scripture where Christians are in persecution, where Christians are poor, where Christians are running uh, uh, for their lives because they're being persecuted by Roman Caesar. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what is Peter's reaction here? Well, first of all, of course, he didn't imagine a big fat bank account. No, he fell at the feet of Jesus and he says, get away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Something has changed now in Peter that was not there before. He had witnessed Jesus' miracles before. He had heard Jesus speak before. He had heard him teach. But now something resonated with Peter that did not resonate with Peter up to this particular point. And we have to understand that Peter goes from calling Jesus master to now calling him Lord, Kuros, the divine name for God, Adonai. Now, it is true that at times master and Lord are used interchangeably. That, that is true. But those that study the Greek say that the word here, Lord, is indeed Kuros, God Almighty. So that is what Peter is calling Jesus. Not master now, but almighty God. And so Peter's view of Jesus has moved from Jesus as simply an extraordinary person from God to God himself. That's the change. Peter now recognizes he's in the presence of God and this is the turning point for Peter. Peter sees the fish under the authority of Jesus and Peter's Jewish knowledge, he grew up in a synagogue, lots of Jewish teaching from the Old Testament, and that would tell him that God has authority over all of nature, that God created the heavens and the earth, and the creator is now standing right in front of Peter. That's what changed Peter's heart. And from again, from his Jewish teaching, then Peter echoes what He thought he has learned from Jewish scriptures. And he says, get away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. And he makes this statement with fear and trepidation. And Peter is beginning to faintly see Jesus as God. God who is perfect in purity. God who is perfect in absolute holiness. But in contrast to this purity and holiness that, that Peter sees God in He sees his own sinfulness. Get away from me, God. Jesus, or Peter does not want Jesus to see his sin because Christ's holiness reveals or magnifies our own sin as it did for Peter. Does it for us? Does it for you and me? It ought to. That's the point. It's the same cry of Abraham when he said, I am just dust and ashes. It's the same cry of the very familiar passage from Isaiah. Woe is me for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. 
It's the same attitude of that tax collector who's afraid to look up to, to heaven to God. He's beating his breast because of his sinfulness. You read the prophets Jeremiah and Job and their attitude, the same attitude, acquiesce before God as to who they really are before God. God in absolute perfect humility, holiness, and man whose righteousness is filthy rags. It's the rightful attitude of the heart when men and women truly have their eyes opened to see a living, holy Jesus Christ. Folks, we all off to behold an uplifted, a glorified, holy, radiant Christ. Yes, yes. But in that radiance, we also have to see our own sinfulness. That, that we are men and women of unclean lips. We ought to be humbled by our sin in the presence of Jesus Christ. The psalmist says in 53, you are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart you will not refuse. This attitude of humility before God, I suggest, is a sign of true conversion to God. It's a recognition of who I really am before that holy God, and without his grace, I am ruined. I am undone, says Isaiah. And again, we have to ask, I ask, has this happened to me? Has this happened to you on a regular basis, acknowledging our sinfulness before a holy God? If we don't have this broken, contrite heart before God, we ought to examine our relationship before God. This was now the heart of Peter. And throughout, uh, through this incident, Jesus opens the eyes of Peter and his partners as to whom they followed and called Master, but now they call him Kuros, Lord. Get away from me, Peter also says. As a new believer, as a babe in Christ, if you will, he sees his sin and he wants Christ to leave. In his sin, he thought the solution was for Christ to leave his presence. Peter, as a sinner, was not comfortable in the presence of holiness. It's the same situation you might remember the Israelites. They didn't want God to come directly to them. And so they asked Moses because, once again, God reveals their sin. Peter was not comfortable in the presence of holiness nor should he have been, nor should we be. Christ's holiness ought to be convicting to us if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Peter, as a newbie in the faith, says, depart from me. And his solution, so he thought, was to have God not look at him because of his sin that he was in. That's what Peter thought. Well, we have to jump ahead roughly two and a half years because uh, we can't leave Peter in this situation, uh, at least. Because of his response, yes, he was a sinner, his response at this point in time was incorrect. And we, as Peter, acknowledge our sin. Unless sin is dealt with, we will all end up in a lost eternity. And if we're believers in Jesus Christ, unless sin is dealt with, we end up with a daily, tarred, tainted relationship with our Lord, with our Savior. We've got to deal 
with our sin. And so we jump ahead to, again, approximately two and a half years to the Apostle John's comment, John chapter 21. And there we find a very similar situation happening. This is after the resurrection. And it appears that the the apostles are discouraged. Uh, They're confused over the events of the last week. Uh, What happened over the last week? Where is the restoration of Israel that we thought was coming? Where is Jesus? Was he truly the Messiah? What is going to happen next? What is going to happen to us who are following him? And so there's this confusion. There's this anxiety. And so we see Peter now a third time. He's going fishing, back to his comfort level, back to what he knew best. And the other, other apostles say, what? We'll go with you. There's discouragement right across the board. And so they're fishing, and someone yells from shore and says, do you catch anything? No. Throw your nets on the other side. And there's so much fish. Another bumper crop, this time The writer tells us there's 153 fish. Then John says to Peter, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. And Peter now, after two and a half years with the Lord, what does Peter do? After sinning grievously, Uh, by denying his Lord, his Kyrios, his Adoniah, three times publicly, and by doing that, identifying himself with the killers of Jesus Christ. What does he do? He does not say, depart from me, Lord. No, Peter jumps into the water to be close to Jesus because he needed a savior. He needed restitution. He he learned of Christ's forgiving grace over the last two and a half years despite his grievous sin. Peter's sin, our sin as believers in Jesus Christ also requires, always requires us to run back to our Savior time and time and time continually back to Jesus Christ because it was only he who suffered and died and rose again to pay for my sins because running back to Christ, he is the only Savior who alone provides grace. Folks, every other faith, doesn't matter which one, is on living its, its works That's how you get to heaven. It's being good. It's getting what you deserved. And I can tell you, if I got what I deserved, I would be in hell. And if you you publicly revealed right now everything that's gone on in your mind, you'd be thrown out of town. But Christ is the only one that offers grace. And so we continually run back to Christ for that grace. Jesus' response was interesting. He says, don't be afraid. What was Peter afraid of? Uh, Not sure. I I offer a suggestion. Possibly because, again, his Old Testament teaching, where God says, if you look upon me, you will die. And we have various situations there, examples of people seeing the Lord or an angel from the Lord and being terrified that they might die. Gideon comes to mind, Samson's parents come to mind. And so God, Jesus says, don't be afraid. But no, Jesus doesn't tell Peter, 
listen, Peter, I, I'm, I'm going to use you, but I want you to clean up your life. I want you to fix up your resume over the next while. No. Jesus says, from now on, they will be catching men. Now, the Greek scholars tell us, uh, of all my reading, all the Greek scholars tell us that the literal translation here says, they will be catching men alive. That's what the literal translation is. Now, we know, of course, over the next few years, Peter had to learn and unlearn a number of things. Even after the resurrection, Peter is still learning, still learning. Witness the dream uh, uh, and being sent to the home of the Gentile. Uh, also, the, the argument or the discussion with, with the Apostle Paul, there was a disagreement. Paul was right, Peter was wrong. Notice that Jesus did not also say, no, Peter, you're not a sinner. You're a pretty good guy. I mean, look, you look after your family and all those are good things. No, he didn't say that. But Jesus was going to use the likes of Peter, a sinner, to proclaim the gospel, to be a leader in the early church. In other words, despite men's weakness, that is sin, Christ's message is going to go forward. I have in the past asked myself, and maybe we'll continue to ask because I might not get it right, why a sovereign God, a holy, pure God, chooses to use sinful men and women to proclaim his gospel. I'm not sure why, but I'm going to offer you this suggestion. And my suggestion is this. God chooses to use sinful men and women precisely because we are sinful men and women. And what I mean is, as the world looks to believers in Jesus Christ and their message as they proclaim, whether in word or, or, or in actions, ought to be, I once was dead, but now I'm alive. I once was blind, but now I see. But in all of that, Christian, we've got to proclaim the grace of Jesus Christ. A regenerated sinful heart is to show the grace of God to the world that God indeed came to save sinners such as us, and still sinners such as us. And we as saved sinners are Christ's workmanship and that Christ offers this grace to all sinners so that we, the worst of sinners, hopefully you're part of that circle, by our salvation, we can demonstrate to the world that Christ is merciful and gracious to all sinners who turn to him. That Christ saves sinners, not the righteous. That's us. In other words, if I can sum up by saying this, we are the evidence. We as saved sinners are the evidence of his promise that he came to save sinners. And as sinners, we go forward to proclaim that message again in whatever gift area that we uh, have, not because we're sinless, we admit we're sinners, nor because we have the ability to turn people to Jesus Christ, but because all authority has been given to Jesus Christ, so therefore, all authority has been given to Christ, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So he says to Peter, from now on, you will be catching men alive. 
I, I have to be cautious in applying this phrase because there's some, there's misunderstanding, there's different understandings, not misunderstandings. I don't have the be all here. There's different understandings of that phrase. Uh, but what is Jesus saying? Well, let me offer at least this. In part, Jesus is saying, again, keep in mind that Peter was steeped in the Old Testament knowledge. And so Jesus is saying, who is sovereign over the fish? In other words, even if there's no fish in that sea, who created the fish instantly? Who directed the fish to enter the net? And these would be rhetorical questions, of course, for Peter. And so in this same way, God is sovereign over men and women. Christ tells us that no one can come to the Father unless the Father first draw him. In other words, God convicts men and women's hearts, thus we are drawn to him, and we are now alive to the things of God, not before. And so I suggest the context for Peter is this, that men and women are drawn to God and now alive to the things of God, and you, Peter are going to have the responsibility of leading and teaching men who are now alive. Now we see this, I think, proved out for us uh, in the book of Acts, where Peter preaches his first sermon and we have 3,000 men and women turn their life over to Jesus Christ. Then 5,000. And I could not help but think of Peter on this first sermon as he witnesses all of these people yell out, what must we do to be saved? Repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can't help but think that Peter must have, I mean, in my mind, thinking back to this very miracle of the abundant fishes. And he's saying, oh, that was what the miracle of the fish was all about. In other words, I did nothing except obey Christ's command to preach, and we have an abundant harvest here. I simply obeyed. Just like I simply obeyed when he said, go out deeper, when it was impossible to fish, so he thought, and they got a bumper harvest. It's all about God. I just have to say one more thing about the last verse. And they left everything and they followed him. And that is true. Uh, some translations say they left everything immediately. And the word immediately might have likely more have a sense of urgency rather than timing. And I'm not here to judge what other people are saying. Because I've heard too many messages. They just left all those fish and they left. From what I know of the Lord, I don't think that's what happened. Yes, they left everything and followed him. What I mean is this, when Jesus fed the 5,000, when Jesus fed the 4,000, what did he ask the apostles to do? Gather up the scraps, right? In other words, Jesus was not a waster of food, especially in that culture where food was not plentiful. So my thinking, and again, I'm suggesting to you, is that they made an arrangement with their father Zebedee and said, look after the fish, whatever it was, and then they followed Jesus Christ. In a sense, this portion of scripture has application, of course, to all of us, in that we all, as believers, are to be catchers of men alive. 
that all of us are to recognize our sinfulness and unworthiness before God continually. And that we all are to run to Christ, our Savior, and trust that Christ is sovereign over the affairs of men and women as he sends us out to proclaim the gospel in however way we have that ministry. But it seems also here, though, that Luke seems to focus on Peter and the object lesson that Christ used to illustrate Peter's destiny, not only here, but also in John chapter 21. He was specifically called to be a catcher of men alive. And many out throughout our Christian history have had the same calling like Peter. And you know what? Sinners, the lot of them. Isn't it amazing that the Christian church continues to thrive despite what we may, we might not see it so visibly because sinners are proclaiming the gracious gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet others don't have the same ministry as Peter. Uh, They're called for different tasks as per their gifts. Seeing Jesus as God was a dramatic turning point uh, for Peter and his partners, resulting in this commitment to follow Jesus Christ. We may not be called to the same ministry as Peter, but we are called to make that same commitment. And and so I leave us with a question. How do I see this Jesus of the New Testament? And, And if I see him as the very son of God, what type of commitment have I made to him? Shall we pray? Once again, our Father, it's with gracious hearts that we come before you, acknowledging who we are, but thanking you again for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in him, through him, we pray, we praise, and we have our our very being. So please accept our thanks and our praise in his name. Amen.